The reading this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 20, and beginning to read at verse 19. That's John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, He declared, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray before we begin. Father God, would you send your Holy Spirit this morning and, and yeah, as we take a look at this passage, would you show us more of Jesus this morning? And would you take what I say and anything that's not of you, would it be quickly forgotten? In Jesus' name. Amen. We all love stories, don't we? I think it's an intrinsic part of being human. It's one of those things that kind of crosses cultures. In our own culture, we love telling stories through film and through TV and through novels. And I think we have a tendency as well to like happy endings. Although I've often heard people complain about happy endings because, you know, that's not how the world seems to work. Actually, if you sort of look at films and things, 
the ones that have happy endings tend to be the most popular. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with good novels because I find myself so sucked in that I end up sort of agonising whenever anything bad happens. And I often end up having to look to the end to see whether my, the main character actually survives. But there are no such spoilers for us in real life. We can't look to the end to see what happens. And in the same way, there weren't any spoilers for the disciples when Jesus was crucified. They didn't know that there was going to be this happy ending afterwards. And I think that can be one of the problems for us when we come to look at the Easter story, because we're so familiar with it that the, the horrificness of Jesus' death and the shock of the disciples when he turns up alive three days later are somewhat muted by the fact that we know what happens and we know that this is coming. And so where we left it last week, we saw the beginning of the happy ending. We saw that Peter and John have seen the empty tomb and Mary has met the risen Jesus and gone back to the disciples with that famous cry, he is risen. And yet, if we weren't so familiar with the story, we would probably still be left with lots of questions. Like, why? And how? And what next? And actually, I think probably for Peter and John and Mary, they were probably left with more questions than answers. And I think we see that at the beginning of our reading today. We see that the disciples are in a locked room for fear of the Jewish leaders. I think it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall in that room to hear the conversations they were having before Jesus turned up. It makes me wonder whether they all believed Mary. After all, Peter and John had only seen the empty tomb. And so I wonder if there was a measure of disbelief there. And even for those who did believe, there was probably a lot of questions. A lot of, well, what happens now? What next? Do we go back to being his disciples? Do we just go back to being fishermen? What happens now? And yet what we see is as Jesus comes to this group of bewildered blokes, there's three things that he says and three things that he gives them through what he says. And we're going to take a look at each of those things in turn because those things are things he wants to give us today as well as Christians today. So the first thing we see is Jesus says, peace be with you. He says that twice. He comes and he gives them his peace. We've seen that they're clearly not at peace. They're clearly full of questions. They are hiding for fear of the repercussions of the tomb being found empty. They're full of questions about what next, why, how. And yet when Jesus comes to them, he doesn't give them answers to all these things. He doesn't make all these difficulties go away. But he still gives them peace. And I think that's the nature of the peace that Jesus gives us as well. It's not the sort of peace that takes all our problems away. I think the sort of peace Jesus brings is summed up perfectly in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You may not be familiar with this hymn, I just want to read what the hymn writer says though. When the peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, 
it is well, it is well with my soul. It may not seem obvious how that relates, but the story behind this hymn really sums up the peace that Jesus brings. This hymn was written by a guy called Horatio Spafford, and Spafford was a lawyer in 19th century Chicago, and he came to write this hymn after a series of family tragedies. The first was his son was seriously ill and nearly died. Uh, Then there was a great fire in Chicago, and he lost a lot of money that he'd invested because things went up in smoke. And after that, his, his career kind of took a downward spiral. And so he decided his family should take a break and travel to England for a while. And as it turned out, he had to stay behind and he was going to meet his family in England a bit later on. But the ship his family were on sank and he lost his four daughters. And it was shortly after that tragedy that he came to write these words. And I think it's a tremendous testimony of the peace that Jesus brings that he was still able to say, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The peace Jesus brings, I'm sure, did not take away the pain at losing his four daughters. And yet the peace that Jesus gives us still gives us hope and comfort and confidence, even in the face of our problems. Paul calls that peace in Philippians, a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the sort of peace where people will look on and know our circumstances and think, why are you so calm? You shouldn't be. And yet that's the nature of the peace that Jesus brings. It gives us assurance and comfort and hope. Secondly, we see that Jesus gives his disciples purpose. He says, just as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And the thing is, the God we serve is a missional God. The Father sent his Son into the world to save his people. He sent Jesus into the world to redeem his church, to save for himself a bride, his people. And in the same way, the Son, Jesus, sends his people out in the power of the Holy Spirit. You might remember back in John 10, Jesus calls his people sheep. And back there in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And the remarkable thing is that Jesus uses people who were once lost sheep who were once lost, to bring in those sheep who are still lost. And he wants to use us. He wants to use us to bring in those who are still his lost sheep. It can be easy for us to distance ourselves from the disciples and think, well, you know, Jesus told them to go and found the church. But he wants to use us in the same way, to bring in his lost sheep. I think the trouble with talking about evangelism in church is it can make us feel guilty. It can make us feel like we're not doing very well at it. And sometimes that guilt can be our only motivation for actually doing it. You know, we we do it because we don't want to feel guilty when people talk about doing it. But that guilt is never going to be a good motivation. It's never going to lead us to fruitfully telling people about Jesus. So what should our motivation be? Well, we had a guest speaker at our Christian Union a few weeks ago before our missions week. 
And one thing that he said about this that really struck me is evangelism is just worship in a different context. Just think about that for a second. What he means is when we are together as Christians, whether that be in church like this or just informally, when we're talking about what the Lord has done in our lives, that's worship. And so how is it any different when we're doing the very same thing out in the world with people who don't know Jesus? It's still worship. And the, thing, the striking thing about this is I think it shows us that worship should be our primary motivation for evangelism. We want to tell people about Jesus because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've seen what he's done in our lives, and so of course we'd want to tell others. Finally, we see that Jesus gives his disciples power. He doesn't just give them purpose and then leave them with no way of fulfilling it. We have this incident where he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this might raise a few questions for us. You know, what about Pentecost? Do the disciples receive the Holy Spirit twice? Well, I don't think it actually matters. Um, some, some people say they do. Some people say this is just prophetic and a foreshadowing of Pentecost. But actually, it doesn't matter. What we see here is something about what the Holy Spirit does. We see that Jesus breathes on them. And that metaphor of breathing comes up in the Old Testament. It comes up in Genesis 2, where the Lord God breathes life into Adam. And so we see that the Holy Spirit gives life. He gives life to things. And I think this feeds directly off the back of what we've just said about Jesus giving the disciples purpose. Because the other thing when people talk about evangelism is we kind of feel inadequate. Having been involved in Christian Union at uni, I've been so struck by how some of my friends seem so far off becoming Christians. You know, I've, I've felt really inadequate at times because I just think, you know, that person is a million miles away from coming to know Jesus. And yet it's been a constant comfort to me to see that it's God who opens blind eyes, not us. I've constantly been pointed back to 2 Corinthians 4. And there, Paul, uh, Paul says in verse 4, the God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so in a way, I should feel inadequate because my friends are blind. I can't open their eyes. And yet there's comfort. In verse 6, Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who opens those blinded eyes, not us. And so it's comforting that God doesn't just send us out. He sends us out with the one who can actually draw people to Jesus. He sends us out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, we come on to this last bit of the passage about doubting Thomas. And there's so much that could be said about this bit, but I, I just want to focus in on what Thomas actually says, his confession, having met the risen Jesus. Because Thomas's confession is big. My Lord and my God. You might well know that John's gospel is pretty explicit about who Jesus is. 
But even in the grand scheme of that, Thomas's confession is big. Sometimes I think when we look at Thomas, we can think he was a bit stupid. We can think his doubts were a bit over the top. But actually, we're surrounded by the same sort of scepticism every day. It's the air that we breathe. You have to see it to believe it. And even in situations like in Thomas's case, where people say they've seen it, if you don't believe it can happen, you have to find another way of explaining it. There's this current craze with magicians, and I, I was watching a program on this particular magician with one of my housemates a few months ago, and I couldn't see how he did any of his tricks. I couldn't work out how he did them. But we always assume when we see, see that sort of stuff that there is some kind of natural explanation for it. We assume that even, even if we're seeing something that seems impossible, there is a way of explaining it. And so in that sense, we're just like Thomas. Thomas says to the disciples effectively, you've seen him, I want to touch him before I believe. But what we see is that Thomas's doubt leads him to a deeper understanding of who Jesus actually is. His confession, my Lord and my God, is effectively saying this very man, this Jesus, is the Lord of the universe. He is the one for whom and through whom all things were made. He is the Son, eternally loved by the Father. He is the Word, as John calls him at the start of his Gospel. And the thing about getting that, getting that Jesus is our Lord and God, is that it ties together those three things we saw before that Jesus wants to give his followers. Peace, purpose and power. Think about it. We can only know Jesus' peace in the midst of our tough circumstances if we truly believe that he is our Lord and God. Because otherwise we're never going to trust that in the midst of those circumstances he can bring good out of them. Power. Well, we've seen that our motivation for evangelism should be worship. And how can it be worship if we do not know the one we're worshipping? Jesus as our Lord and God. And finally, power. Well, you might be feeling like I was about my friends. You might know people who you think are just a million miles away from becoming Christians. We're never going to see the point in talking to them about Jesus if we don't believe that he has given us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit can open blinded eyes. So finally, peace, power and purpose are all things that Jesus gave his disciples then and they're all things that he wants to give us now, today. And so how do you feel about those things? Do you know his peace? Do you feel that the purpose of your life is to speak the gospel wherever you get the opportunity? And do you know that Jesus has given you the power to do that? Because the comforting thing is that when we feel we're lacking in these things, all we have to do is go to the Lord and ask. He's not withheld his only son from us, so why would he withhold anything else from us? Amen. Thank you.